Tarzan wasn't a ladies' man. He'd just come along and scoop 'em up under his arm like that. Quick as a cat in the jungle. But Clark Kent, now there was a real gent. He would not be caught sitting around in no jungle scheme, dumb as an ape doing nothing. Superman never made any money, saving the world from Solomon Grundy. Sometimes I despair. The world will never see another man. Hello, and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 65, where we go back, back to, to the, the past, past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and by encoded Kryptonian radio transmission. We are doing, uh, this is part three of our look at Death of Superman, the uh, 25th anniversary of that DC Comics event. And this one will deal with The Reign of the Superman, part one. Yes. Uh, which happened after a little hiatus that we'll talk about in publishing. But uh, along with some new uh, Superman to reign, we had an all new creative team. Uh, or teams, or some new creative teams. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we had some. We had some new, uh, some new blood into the fold here. Uh, wait, wait, most wait. of them. Oh, go ahead. Oh, most of them are for the uh, the one shots that we're going to discuss very briefly. But <laughs> but the, but this is something. This is more evidence to me at the time that they were making a change. You know that that yes. this change might be permanent. Like you know, creator change makes you feel like, oh wait a second, they are actually mm-hmm. doing something here. So anyway, let's let's start talking about these fine folk. Absolutely. We'll start with uh we're saying Carl Kiesel. Is that what yep, we're saying? That's it. That's okay. what I was saying. <laughs> now he was born January seventh, nineteen fifty nine in Victor, New York. Uh, his biggest childhood influences were Jack Kirby and Milton Caniff uh, of Terry of the Pi- and the Pirates fame. Uh, Carl spent uh, time at the Joe Cubitt School for Illustration and Hartford University. Uh, for eight months, he worked as an art director for the for at a Hartford Woman. Uh, there's a magazine for women. Go figure. There you go. In uh, Hartford County, well, titled, Connecticut. Yeah. Sure, that's exactly what it says on the tin. Uh, now he moved to New York City to break into comics, and he was noticed by uh, Sal Amendola at a comics convention. Uh, Sal was one of uh, a lot of artists brought over to DC when Dick Giordano was hired as editor back in 1969. Uh, Kiesel's first work for DC appeared in New Talent Showcase number four. This was cover dated April 1984, and in there he was inking Stan Wax pencils in the story Bobcat. Uh, he also worked on the series Amazing Man and uh, provided inks over the pencils of George Perez's History of the DC Universe and uh, inked over John Byrne on DC Legends and early on in Superman Volume 2. Uh, despite, despite getting plenty of illustration work, Carl always wanted to write comic books. He would send lots of suggestions to his, co- suggestions to his comic writers, essentially uh, pitching some ideas. Uh, notably, John Byrne referred to him as Carl the Kibitza. <laughs> 
John Byrne. Uh, John <laughs> Byrne speaking Yiddish. Bless your heart. Nice. Indeed. Now, with his then-wife, Barbara Kiesel, uh, he co-wrote a Hawk and Dove miniseries in 1988 that uh, we mostly know for uh, introducing us to Rob Liefeld, mm-hmm. man. That's right. Now, uh, Kiesel's first work for Marvel Comics was inking a vision story in Avengers Spotlight number 23. This was coded in October 1989. Uh, not long after that, he began writing The Adventures of Superman, beginning with issue 500 of the Cameo in 500, and we'll be discussing that very shortly. That's right, but uh, we're going to a veteran of the industry here, uh, Walt Simonson, born September 2nd, 1946, in Knoxville, Tennessee. In 64 or 65, Simonson discovered Marvel Comics Thor by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, and he read the title for four years. After graduating from Amherst with a degree in geology, Simonson took a year off and enrolled as an art major at the Rhode Island School of Design, graduating in 1972. Simonson's first professional published comic book work was illustrating writer Len Wein's story Cyrano's Army in DC's Weird War Tales No. 10, January 1973 cover date. Walt began writing and drawing Thor with issue 337, that was November 1983, and beginning with Thor number 367, that was in May 1986, Sal Buscema took over art duties, but Walt continued to write until issue 382, that would be the August 1987 cover date, and this is often his most celebrated work, although this, yes. by no means, we've already glossed over a bunch of other stuff he did. <laughs> Absolutely. These are some compressed biographies here for the uh, for space reasons. Uh, Simonson became writer of the Fantastic Four with issue number 334. That was December 1989 cover, and three issues later began penciling and inking as well. For issues 347 to 349, he collaborated with Art Adams, introducing the new Fantastic Four, consisting of Wolverine, Spider-Man, Ghost Rider, and the Hulk. Simonson left the Fantastic Four with issue 354 in July 1991, just in time to memorialize Superman's untimely death after drawing Robocop vs. Terminator, that is. Let's not forget that. Mm-hmm. We did a show on that in the archives, too. If That's you in the archives, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, uh, we have Dennis, uh, we're saying Yankee, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to ask you every time we're naming a name. That's here. fine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> as, long as, as long as you and I agree, we decided that's, that's all fine. that matters, yeah. <laughs> Yes, uh, he was born April 13, 1950, in Cleveland, Ohio. He, he earned his BFA from the Cleveland Institute of Art. Uh, Yankee's first published work was in a, a 19, it was a 1974 illustration in DC Comics' House of Mystery. But his prof- professional career took off a decade later when he was hired to ink Paul Neary on Marvel's Captain America, and he did that for two years. I uh, moved over to DC Comics in 1987 and inked the final nine issues of Electric Warrior over Jim Bikey's pencils. I uh, then inked the four-issue miniseries The Phantom, penciled by Joe Orlando and written by Peter David. Around the same time, he became the regular inker on Adventures of Superman and Superman, mostly inking uh, over Jerry Ordway's pencils. Uh, he then spent nine years as the anchor of Superman: The Man of Steel, which is mostly over John Bogdanov, and that'll be uh, that, that'll be that'll include some issues we're going to discuss. Yeah, bring it right up to the present. Uh, there's also William Mesner Loeb's, born William Francis Loeb's Jr. on September, on February 19th, 1949, in Ferndale, Michigan. He's got a lot of names. I know. I really just jamming him in there, <laughs> you know. Uh, William's right arm was amputated above the shoulder in infancy because of a cancerous tumor he writes and draws with his left hand. His first comics work was for Power Comics Company and a Noble Comics Justice Machine with Mike Gustavich in 1981. 
His first ongoing series was Journey, the Adventures of Wolverine McAllister, about a 19th century Michigan frontier life, which he both wrote and illustrated. It was published in 1983 and to 1986 by Aardvark, Van Heim, and then Fanagraphics. In 1988, he began writing The Flash with issue number 15 and continued through number 61. And in 1990, Mesner Loeb's became the writer of the Batman newspaper comic strip and wrote the strip until its cancellation the following year. And then he attended a very special uh, event here that we'll be talking mm-hmm. about today. Now, the next guy we're going to talk about is, is a, we, we want to repeat that these are very compressed mm-hmm. bios because uh, we're going to be discussing one of the giants of Superman history. Here. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, Mr. Kurt Swan. Uh, Douglas Curtis Swan was born February 17th, 1920. Probably on Earth. I'm pretty sure, yeah. (laughs) Now, while his comrades in the 34th Division eventually went into combat in North Africa and Italy, Swan spent most of World War II working as an artist for the GI magazine Stars and Stripes. While at Stars and Stripes, Swan met writer France Heron, who uh, eventually directed him to DC Comics. Uh, Apart from a few months of night classes at the Pratt Institute under the GI Bill, Swan was entirely self-taught. Wow. Uh, Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, Initially, Swan drew many different features, including Tommy Tomorrow and Gangbusters, uh, but slowly began gravitating towards the Superman line of books. His first job penciling the iconic character was in Superman number 51, this is volume one, of course, back in March-April 1948. Now, research shows that Swan began penciling the Superboy series with its fifth issue. That was November 1949 cover written by Bill Finger. Uh, He drew the first comics meeting of Batman and Superman in Superman number 76, this is the May-June 1952 issue. Uh, the two issue, the two heroes uh, began teaming on a regular basis in World's Finest Comics, number 71, July-August 1954, in a story that was also drawn by Swan. Yeah, Swan, before that, at that time, you know, World's Finest was a comic that was coming up, but it was two separate stories, Superman, Batman. Yes. Drawn Superman and, would get a story, Batman would get exactly, a story. Exactly, yeah. so th- this is when they would meet. So, But for a long time, both characters were essentially drawn by one or two people. So th- mm-hmm. this was really, I think, a, you know, someone else's take on these two characters, I think, was really something, you know, the core characters of DC Comics, obviously. Sure. Uh, anyway, that's just I just want to throw out a little note on that. Absolutely. Now, uh, Swan felt that his breakthrough came when he was assigned the art duties on Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, in 1954. Uh, he would become the definitive artist of Superman in the early 60s with a, quote, new look to the character that replaced Wayne Boring's big chin version, yeah. the, uh, the, the old man-looking Superman. Yeah. Uh, he always looked like an older guy. Exactly. He always looked exactly, that's exactly right. He looked like an older kind of authoritarian mm-hmm. figure, and uh, he could only ever be seen in, like, Three poses, you know. That was, you know, a kind of, in a three-quarter pose, a profile, and now, you know, maybe a, a third one. And unless he was smiling, he always looked mean. Always looked uh, angry. <laughs> and, uh, had a very big brow, you know. Yeah, he was. He was. He, he was did. the. Uh, he was the stern but fair dad. You know, that was all. Yes, he was. Now, uh, after uh, DC's uh, 1985 12-issue limited series, Crisis on Infinite Earths, and with the impending 1986 revision of Superman by writer-artist John Byrne, Swan was released from his duties on the. Superman comics. His last work would be the non-canonical uh, 1986 story, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow, written by Alan Moore. After this, Swan continued to do occasional minor projects for DC, including the artwork of what is thought to be one of the rarest Superman comics ever published, called This Island Bradman. This is written by David P. Levin, a comic book that was privately commissioned in 1988 by real estate tycoon Jeffrey Bradman as a bar mitzvah gift for his son. And then he contributed 
to this thing. Yeah, and without making this too much of a Kurt Swan love fest, you know, because it could be. Yeah. It really could be. I, you know, I really just got to throw out there that we're talking about a guy that essentially defined the look of Superman to this day. People, this day. people more or less follow his design as far as like facial features and and how you space out the head. And uh, I think looking at his art just compared to what it was today is today. It might look very plain or whatever. Yeah. You, know, you might think of it as being a mid-century kind of a look. But you talk to anyone from that time, it was like a shift in comic books where suddenly it was like, wow, this is someone drawing realistically instead of mm-hmm. uh, sort of loosely or whatever. This was so it's the fact that he's self-trained, I think, is really a Amazing. fascinating aspect yeah. of him. Yeah, he definitely had a great grasp. Anyway, a couple other people here. We got Trevor Scott, who was raised in Los Angeles, South Bay Area. In 1992, Trevor began his career thanks to advice from fellow artist Art Thibair, Thibair and from sure. given by editor Mark Mike Carlin. Uh, this would have been inking the cover to Action Comics 677. That was May 1992 cover date, and he wasn't too far off from what we're going to talk about today. And then there's also June Brigman, born October 25, 1960, in Atlanta, Georgia. June attended Georgia State University and the University of Georgia. She broke into comics with AC Comics in 1983, providing color for the Light Runner trade paperback by Lamar Waldron and Rod Wigman. She then penciled the cover to AmeriComics number two. That was a June 1983 cover date. After being briefly hired by DC, June moved quickly to Marvel, where she co-created the Power Pack with Louise Simonson. First issue of that was Power Pack number one, May 1984 cover. For the next seven years, Brigman worked exclusively for Marvel, mostly on short runs. She also contributed to illustrations to the various editions of the official handbook to the Marvel Universe. In 1994, she started drawing Supergirl full-time, and a year before that, she drew Supergirl in one of the books that we'll be discussing today. Mm-hmm. We also have Dennis Rodier. He was born somewhere, sometime, in Canada, we're thinking. Uh, we're, we're imagining he's one of those uh, French-speaking Quebecois uh, yeah, from, uh, from most, the looks of it. most likely. Now, in 1986, uh, Rodier began a career as an illustrator, which would transform which would transform him two years later into a comic book artist. Uh, his first work for DC Comics was a Batman story, published as a bonus book that came with Detective Comics number 589, his August 1988 cover. This was a bonus book number five, For the Love of Ivy, by Louis Clark, Steve Pearsall, and Dean Haspiel, and inked by Rodier. The, the bonus books were... were Tryout books, basically, yeah. for uh, new creative teams and whatnot. Uh, now, Rodier has worked on such world-famous characters as Batman, Captain America, and Wonder Woman. It was his work on Superman that garnered Rodier's greatest acclaim, especially on the award-winning The Death of Superman story arc. Say, that's right where we are right now. How do we <laughs> yes. have that? It always seems to work out that way for us. Uh, but before we jump into the return, let's just take a little look at a couple of specials that came out in the in-between time, because... All four Superman titles went on a three-month hiatus after Funeral for a Friend that we covered last episode, which mm-hmm. also, again, Chris, this was more evidence to me. This was something permanent. You know, they were really doing it's something. It's a done deal, you know, This yeah. is like, this could be so, uh, yeah, this was to imply that, like, they were really putting to bed. Uh, you know, I never, do, do you know the explanation for why they did this, or did they say we were doing a creative retooling on the fly, or... Yeah, but, I think uh, it was just to. Uh, I think they wanted to show what the world would be like without Superman I comics think, in the I, world. That's, really, that's all yeah. it was. Yeah, that they, they were letting you know this could happen, and maybe that could be our moment of silence to reflect on uh, what had happened. Yeah, it's a, but it's it felt definitive. It felt something was uh, 
they were doing something purposefully, you know. So, yeah. um, but at that time, we all we did see a few uh, things. We saw Legacy of Superman number one that had a March 1993 cover date that was released February 2nd, 1993, for two dollars and fifty cents. Had a few stories in there. Uh, one of them was The Guardians of Metropolis by Carl Kiesel and Walt Simonson. At Cadmus, the docs try to procure a tissue sample from Superman, while Westfield and Guardian argue, and they do that a lot. That's really all they do. And the newsboys <laughs> enter with a disc containing Superman's DNA code, and they probably all clambered in the room, you know, like a uh, pack of uh, puppies. Like or a mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Guardian suggests they just clone him. I mean, he's already a clone. I yeah, I don't know what one what would happen after that. Probably would have ten eyes or something. Uh, mm. Westfield introduces Guardian to a super soldier soldier called Auron, who himself is another clone of the original Guardian, Jim Harper. Auron plugs the DNA data disk into the. Uh, oop, I jumped ahead. Sorry. The Guardians fight. The newsboys and Westfield give chase. Auron plugs the DNA disk into a, a drive in gear and then destroys the original disk. Claiming that Superman's DNA is too valuable to risk it falling into careless hands, he then takes off for the cosmos with DNA's Superman's DNA in his wrist or whatever. Yes, and uh, we're, we're happy that he's gone. That's nice. um, <laughs> we've got another story here called Sister Act. This is by Roger Stern and Dennis Rodier. This is a Rose and Thorn story. Uh, MPD-addled uh, Rosalind Rose Forrest first appeared in Superman's Girlfriend, Lois Lane, number 105, October 1970 cover, created by Robert Kaniger and Ross Andrew. In this story, a VCR is stolen. And recovered. Oh, the pieces are all coming together now. I know. <laughs> We've got a gangbuster of suicide slums. So suicide slum. Uh, that is the next story. This is by Jerry Ordway and Dennis Yankee. Uh, gangbuster busts a gang. Hey. Um, but uh, everybody seems to know that it's uh, Delgado under the mask, and uh, there's, since there's no evidence to make his uh, gang busting stick and lead to an arrest. He might get sued by the people he beat up. So, uh, <laughs> such is life for our man Delgado. I know, uh, really. <laughs> Inspector Anderson uh, will offer him a bus ticket out of town, and uh, we'll find out very soon if he took him up on that. I, I hope he does, frankly. It really is probably a good idea. but uh, It would be the best. You quit while you're behind. Really? <laughs> I just can't catch a break. They really should, they really should have, like, a, uh, you know, you zoom in on him at the end of every single one. He's just like, has a catchphrase. Ah, I thought it again. Anyway. <laughs> uh, two more stories in this issue. There was Funeral Pyres by William Mesner Lobes and Kurt Swan. Lex Luthor sets up a gang called the Terror Masters. Ooh. And also Sinbad and his sister Soraya. Uh, Sinbad, David Nazur, first appeared in Superman Volume 2, number 48, October 1990, and he was pretty lame. Then there's also Vanishing Point by Dan Jurgens and Trevor Scott. At Vanishing Point, this is, you know, where time is ending and being compiled, Wave Rider and the Linear Men visit the Library of Time to relive the death of Superman. They have a hard time getting through it, but take solace in the knowledge that living outside of time, they already know how this will shake out. Uh, they ain't telling. Anyway, uh, for more on these geeks, check out our Weird Comics History coverage of Zero Hour, Crisis in Time, which is episode number 20 in the archives. Mm-hmm. Now, Legacy of Superman wasn't the only special. The other one here, and we're going to talk about this one even briefer, is uh, Supergirl and Team Luther, number one, April 1993 cover date, released March 9th, 1993, for $2.50. Uh, now, Team Luther is 
you know, you kind of could, could probably figure it out. It's Lex Luthor's uh, security detail. Uh, they first appeared in Superman Volume 2, Number 28. This is a February of 89 cover. Uh, they were created by Roger Stern and Kerry Gamble. Uh, now, the first story is called The Future of Metropolis by Roger Stern and June Brigman. Uh, in it, Lex Luthor II attempts to get his team the same special authority Superman had from the city of, of, of Metropolis. Basically, he wants them to be looked at as a uh, yeah. as an authority figure and uh, be above the law at the same time. Sure. Uh, the second story, Shelter, by Louise Simonson and Dennis Rodier, is about the Underworlders. <laughs> uh, they they're fleeing the flood and they're looking for shelter, yeah. and uh, that's all the people need to know. You just don't like the Underworlders. That's all there hate is them. to it. I, I hated it when Marvel had them and they called them the Morlocks. <laughs> uh, it's, I, not my favorite. What about concept. the mole? What about the moloids? There are the underworlders. Anyway, you don't like anything. <laughs> anything that lives underground, you don't want to know about. Any, and I just want to again, especially if they have red curly hair. We're going to be talking a little bit more about you know our um, memories of this event uh, after uh, towards the end of the episode. But this was another thing. Plus the fact that before this, the two issues of Action Comics were Supergirl and Action Comics. Mm. I remember I didn't really think Supergirl was going to replace Superman. I figured they'd have to maintain. Some sort of a Superman for reasons, but I wondered if Supergirl sure. would become the main, the one in front. But anyway, uh, it was all it was all all mysteries to be solved, folks, at the time. Indeed. So in uh, previews, uh, Diamond previews for February 1993. This would have been Volume Three, Number Two, for books to ship in April 1993. This ship with a black embossed cover featuring Superman. Uh, the headline reads, "He's back, but how?" And there's a, a, an interview with Mike Carlin inside that we're not going to try to uh, impugn Mr. Carlin by doing his voice, but we are going to trade. <laughs> we are going to trade them back and forth. <laughs> um, so previews asked, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the next Superman storyline? As far as we can gather, various heroes, either familiar or not, decide to impersonate the Man of Steel. But our readers will probably have heard of all sorts of crazy theories by the time they read this. Yes, uh, Mike responds with, Come April, four people will show up in Metropolis, all claiming to be Superman. The story lies in finding out which, if any, is the real thing. They may be pieces of the real Superman. Then again, Superman may have nothing to do with any of them. Could any of these four Supermen actually be a familiar character? Sure, that's very possible. The preview's hot take is that this all goes back to Cadmus, to which Mike says... Actually, that's one rumor among many. Cadmus will factor into the new storyline, though not exclusively. Have you heard from John Byrne at all? He keeps asking me when I'm going to call him to bring Superman back. Laughter. We're still friends. Uh, he did a great stint on the book, and we've been building on, the, on his stuff right from the start. How do you deal with your more outspoken critics? For example, Peter David, in a, re in a recent comic Buyer's Guide column, genuinely seemed disgusted by what he called DC's chop-licking joy over all the attention generated by the death of Superman. That kind of sentiment has been around since the day we announced our intentions. You know, the whole, well, they're only doing this to sell more comic books kind of attitude. Well, maybe I'm wrong, but I always thought that's, that that's exactly what we're in the business to do. I just don't understand what the problem is. If you're interested in the story, good, buy it. If not, then don't. He continues and says, I can honestly say that Peter David wasn't at the meeting where this whole thing was hatched. I was. Here's a simplified version of how it went. Dan Jurgens said, hey, why don't we kill Superman? And so Doomsday was born. Then somebody said, okay, what comes next? 
So we created a funeral for a friend. But not once did anybody say, oh boy, let's do something that'll make us all millions of dollars. Yeah, they only said tens of thousands. Anyway, uh, previews that asks, (laughs) uh, what do you think of the whole media circus surrounding the story? Quite a few people have complained about all the hype. But if anything, we spent more time trying to keep our plans as quiet as possible. We're happy to be in the spotlight if it shines on us at the right time. In other words, publicity is great, but publicity a year in advance of your book hitting the stands is virtually worthless. I mean, at the point where you finally do publish, who's going to care? We don't regret the attention, but there's absolutely no way any company can generate this much hype on command again. Though, I don't understand what's so wrong about wanting to sell your wares. If you're a shoemaker, you want people to buy shoes. How long before the Superman titles return to a regular continuity? Now, this one actually brought me back because I had forgotten about this little uh, this snippet here. Uh, Mike says, here's how it works. Adventures of Superman ships around the 15th. Two weeks later, all four titles featuring the Reign of the Superman storyline will ship on the same day. I forgot all about that. Which, which actually uh, probably explains the three-month hiatus also by itself. It could be, time. sure. Uh, He continues to say, uh, two weeks after that, the Superman books will return to their regular dovetailed continuity. And then they wrapped up with uh, previews asking, do you miss Superman? Do I miss him? No, not really. Why? Because I know where he is. Boing! And that was it. (laughs) Uh, Very good. So uh, here's the solicit for Adventures of Superman number 500 by various folks. This listed reads, hey kids, he's back, sort of. The Superman line of titles returns this month, beginning with this oversized landmark issue. Superman is still dead, and Pa Kent lies in a coma. Somewhere on the other plane of existence, father and an adopted son meet, drawn to the light at the end of a long tunnel. Together, they join forces to save each other from passing on to the other side. But while Pa's will to live suddenly brings him back to consciousness... What became of Superman? In the end, we are teased with four four-page sightings of Superman, leading to this month's ongoing Superman titles. This collector's edition contains an eight-page section exclusive to the direct market, including an all-new splash page and no ads. The cover to this issue features a uniquely enhanced, removable, translucent, translucent cover panel of a painted image by Jerry Ordway. And also worth noting in that same uh, edition of previews, DCNS listed for the fourth printing of Superman number 75. But uh, this is clearly when this copy was written for the retailers and not for the buyers, yeah. right? You can tell. I mean, the whole, they, give, they give away the whole issue right here, but there's a reason. And there's more about the technical you know, uh, sure, saleable sale side of it. You know, uh, it's and funny. I left. Uh, there was like another paragraph of all the. We're we're going to read all the the solicits coming right. up here, and uh, I left uh, a paragraph off where it would where it goes into detail on the variant covers and whatnot. So I didn't think we needed to go through that. No, we're going to be talking about but that it anyway. It shows that you know now you read the solicit. It's like a par- it's like a a bland paragraph that may or may not have to do with the actual comic you're <laughs> yes. reading. You know, but this is like <laughs> down to the ending of the book is right there. You know, anyway. <laughs> yes. Now. Uh, We've introduced it, so now let's talk about it. Adventures of Superman number 500. Stories called Life After Death by Jerry Ordway and Tom Grummet. This has a triangle number of 11 for 1993. And there were two versions released, or three if we do the platinum, but we're not going to do that. Uh, we have the, the white-bagged collectible version. This is uh, you know the opposite of the black bag. Uh, the S on this one is not bleeding. Now, this features, uh, if you were to open it up, it would feature a sort of vellum, ethereal Superman reaching toward the reader. But uh, he's really reaching toward the hand of Jonathan Kent. 
the newsstand edition is Superman and Pa back to back, surrounded by all sorts of ghastly bad guys. Uh, now it's a green cover too. You'll know it if you see it. Uh, this book was released April 13th, 1993 for $2.50 for the newsstand, because it is an oversized issue, and $2.95 for the deluxe edition. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the uh, the newsstand cover was the trade paperback cover for this, at least for, I don't know if it still is, but it was for uh, one time. At, at a time, yeah. Yeah, so that's where, that's where I can really remember it in my mind. But uh, anyway, story picks up right where we left off three months ago. Jonathan Ken had just flatlined, however, in the afterlife, he has just clasped hands with his son Clark he's not there to join his super son however he's there to stop him from going toward the light the Superman ghost compels Jonathan to return to the land of the living he says go back rejoin the living Jonathan Kent the voices whisper that your time has not yet come Superman turns his back to Jonathan and joins a pair of cloaked individuals. It would it really seems that Jonathan sees them as these those burn style Kryptonians with the ruffles mm. around their uh yeah. black <laughs> cloak, whatever that is. Uh, Clark walks into the light and that's not gonna stop Pa. He too flies toward the light. Now back in Smallville, Jonathan has just been injected with lidocaine, which breaks the flatline into intermittent intermittent blips. Uh, a nurse is able to pull Martha away for a cup of coffee so the doctors can you know, get to work. Sure. Uh, outside the exam room, uh, she's surprised to see that Lois has arrived from Metropolis to check in. Speaking of Metropolis, let's go there and meet up with Gangbuster, who breaks up a drug deal. <laughs> or does he? Nope. Not really. No, actually, he, he, he breaks up an undercover cop sting, attempting to bust a big-time dealer. <laughs> and such is life for Jose Delgado. Yeah, the cop says, well, hot shot, we've been setting that dealer up for weeks. He was going to introduce us to his bosses. And Gangbuster replies with, how was I supposed to know? Look, let me just leave. You can cover this somehow. No deal. Didn't you know there was a warrant out for your arrest? Now, never one to quit while he's behind. Gangbuster then starts cop busting. He judo throws an officer to the ground and hops onto a fire escape to, uh, Escape firing guns. Hey, that worked well for me. <laughs> Being as though he's, this is still Jose Delgado, he does take a bullet to the bicep during his escape. I mean, he's, he's lucky uh, the fire escape didn't just clatter and fall off the right? bicep, frankly. There's <laughs> <laughs> always something wrong. <laughs> no, an officer gives chase, which forces Jose to leap off the building and into the conveniently located Metropolis Harbor. Just think of all that bacteria getting into his bullet wound. Now the first cop goes, what in heck made him jump like that? Second cop says, I don't know, suicidal tendencies? Let's get some divers here to search for a body. Now back in heaven, maybe? I don't know. Uh, Pa is dressed like Sergeant Rock's grandfather, and he's stomping through a war zone, bayonet in hand. He stumbles in onto a battlefield where his entire unit lie dead. Yeah, he says into a radio, Mission Command, do you read? Over! And he thinks to himself, Radio's dead! Everything dead! Death is all around me! But I'm alive! Jonathan makes his way through the battlefield and into some brush. Passing into a clearing, he spots a hut that is burning. He rushes inside to find a young man who looks a lot like his brother Harry. Wow. Because, uh, well, it is. Uh, it's, well, a near-death manifestation of him, anyway. Pa says, Harry! Harry! What in heaven's name are you doing in Korea? John, don't you remember? I fell under the thresher machine back on Pa's farm. 
I'm dead, Johnny. We're all dead here. Well, that's pretty downright grisly. I gotta Ooh, say, right? it's like a Stephen King novel all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, Jonathan lifts his brother up. Go get him. The boy don't belong, Johnny. And then a wild commie approaches. Yes, he goes, you, you do not belong, Jonathan Kent. The flyer does. Damn your lion eyes. You go straight to hell. And with that, he punches the red's head. Clean yeah, off. boom. Wow, that's a little that uh, World War II grit will take him out anytime. Uh, in Metropolis, back in Metropolis, Cat Grant gets her butt pinched by Vincent Edge. Vincent Edge is the father of Morgan Edge. Uh, he's also tied up with Darkseid and Apocalypse, so he's, he's a bad guy. Uh, he made his first appearance in Superman Volume 2, number 35, September 1989, and was created by Jerry Ordway and Carrie Gamel. And, you know, while we're introducing people, Cat Grant made her first appearance right at the very start of the post-crisis Superman era in Adventures of Superman number 424, January 1987 cover. She was created by Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway. And hey, while we're here, Gangbuster made his first appearance in Adventures of Superman 428, May 1987, and was also created by Marv and Jerry. So back to the story. Yeah, just butt-pinched cat says, Vincent Edge, this is the 90s. I could press sexual harassment charges against you. <laughs> you can press yourself up against me, Catherine. I may be old, but I'm not dead. Smooth. Uh, we learn he's a sweet-talking Ms. Grant because he needs a favor. You see, Jimmy Olsen hasn't shown up for the last two weeks' worth of Turtle Boy tapings. He also asked about her love life. <laughs> Who does he think he is, Tommy Wiseau? Yeah, really. How are you doing, Catherine? <laughs> How was your love life? How's your love life? <laughs> <laughs> she reveals that she and Jose are on the outs, because he is Jose Delgado. And uh, she starts sobbing, smelling blood. Well, at least we hope that it's bloody smelling. Yes. Vinny decides to, to ask Cat out on a date, and she accepts. What? <laughs> he says... You shouldn't be alone tonight. Why don't you bring your son? And we'll all have dinner together. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Oh, what's wrong with me? We'd be happy to accept your invitation. Now, excuse me, I've got to redo my mascara. The Superman creative team in no way endorses the use of butt pinching as a way to get dates, by the way. That's no, uh, only, no, no. He'll get his... We want to make that clear. Yeah. Speaking of Turtle Boy, over in the prison, the trickster's cellmate is watching a rerun on his teeny tiny television. And laughing like an addle brain methane gas producing jackass. The trickster, he paints with words. Yes, he goes, What is so funny? And the jackass says, <laughs> It's called Turtle Boy, and it's the baddest new show. I mean, it's so bad, but like the producers are so, I don't know, it's, it's you know, very 90s. You know, just in case we forgot what decade the story happens. No, really. <laughs> uh, some of the uh, outfits would clue you into that Right, and hairstyles Yeah, definitely the hairstyles uh, <laughs> The trickster pours water into the teeny tiny television To put an end to the turtling Good one the, Speaking of Turtle Boy, again the, Is this issue really about Turtle Boy, I think actually. It might be uh, we next Back joined, to a pilot <laughs> <really>? <laughs> We next joined Jimmy Olsen at the Daily Planet building Where he is given an assignment While there, he's approached by Ron Troop Or Troupe Ron Troop is going to be the guy to get the Clark Kent gig while he's missing. He first appeared in Adventure Superman 480 in July 1991 cover and was created by Dan Jurgens and Jerry Ordway. Troop has some Turtle Boy-related phone messages for Jim, who makes it pretty clear that his days on the half shell are behind him. Mm-hmm. Now back in Smallville, Lois, conf- uh, she comforts Ma Kent. 
by telling her that she doesn't believe that there's an afterlife that uh, that she'll see Jonathan in when she passes on. I mean, there's a time and a place for this. This woman just lost her son and potentially her husband, right? Come on. Suddenly, suddenly, Lois thinks it's Thanksgiving dinner. I don't it's, know. it's actually it's time, time to get existential about it. You know? <laughs> now, speaking of the afterlife, Jonathan Kent is still trudging through Korea. Uh, he steps on a rotten plank and falls into a pit. A man approaches the hole and tosses him a rope, a man John believes to be his own paw. Well, it's not Pa's paw at all. <laughs> Instead, it's just a demonic monster. In the background, we can see Blaze sitting on a throne made of skulls. This is a nice touch. Yeah, I think you get them from Wayfair. Um, now, Blaze is the daughter of the Wizard Shazam and the sister of Satanus. Uh, her first appearance was Action Comics number 655, July 1990, created by Roger Stern and Bob McCloud. She offers him a deal. Devils always seem to do that kind of That's thing. That's kind of their motif, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll bet she wants Jonathan and Martha Kent's marriage, though, right? No, no, this is actually pretty boilerplate. She, you know, she wants his soul. Then what's going to happen to Aunt May in the end? I mean, without the deal works. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jonathan decides that, uh, screw it, I'll just try my luck in the pit. And he lets go of the line he was holding. Uh, he continues to fall until everything goes white. He suddenly finds himself floating before Kismet. And Kismet, uh, basically think Marvel's Eternity character, mm. but with boobs. Yep. Uh, she first appeared in Adventures of Superman number 494 just a few months earlier in September 1992 cover and was created by Jerry Ordway and Tom Grummet. She sets him on the right path, perhaps to save the Airman. Mm, which is to say she sends him to... The world of Krypton. And we just re-uploaded that, didn't we, Chris? <laughs> yes. That's Cosmic Treadmill, episode four in the archives, and you should be able to find it because it is uh, recently up. Right on the top. <laughs> yeah. Now, when Pa gets his bearings, he sees his boy being carried by a gaggle of Kryptonians in a sedan. Yeah, he rushes over in an attempt to wake Superman, but he's cut off by the Kryptons. He says, open your eyes, boy. They're taking you the wrong way. Yeah, to which a Kryptonian, in quotes, cleric says, You are an outsider with no respect to things Kryptonian. Your legacy beckons Kal-El. Now we slip on back to Metropolis where Gangbuster pulls himself out of the drink. Uh, well, a fellow named High Pockets actually pulls him out. Uh, he suggests they head over to Bibbo's, but Jose's got to stop by the bus station first. Speaking of Bibbo, uh, he first, Bibbo Bibowski is his full name, and he first appeared in Adventures of Superman number 428 in May 1987, cover date, and was created by Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway and is based on a friend of Ordway's named Jojo Kaminsky. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, Ordway's parents owned a, a, like a tavern or something when you were growing up, and I it was a. I seem to recall something like that. Maybe, yeah. maybe even it was lighter than that, like a soda, st- a convenience store, a candy store, something like that. Whatever something it was. Like that. Yeah. And there was a like a salty old sailor that would come in. Come in, and Bibbo, yeah. <laughs> all there in the is. corner. Uh, now back in the afterlife, Pa continues to shout at Superman, and it finally seems like he's getting through. Superman looks at his Kryptonian compatriots and sees them for what they truly are. Monsters. Demons, even. Superman pummels the baddies, like in a page, very quickly. (laughs) Now, Pa suggests that maybe Superman can't really die. And the only reason that he's going through the motions here is due to the fact that he was raised by mortals 
and was, you know, was bred with the concept of mortality, hmm. which is a food for thought that we won't go into here. No, it, it, but it is something <laughs> to think about it. It's all. It is very, it's very, uh, it's very uh, food thoughty. Yeah. Uh, then the, <laughs> now the pair approach a black hole amid the light, and considering, you know, the white light brings it to the afterlife, maybe the black hole bring it back. So they fly toward it. When, uh-oh, the Ozman cometh. Whoa. And that, uh, that's Jor-El to the non-rebirth among us. I know. You really pulled out a very recent uh, call mm-hmm. out there. Bless your heart. I'm Oz, baiting uh, this, this, this <laughs> episode. <laughs> I'm, sure that, I'm sure that the uh, Jor-El as Oz storyline will go on for years and years to come, Chris. Don't worry. Pa <laughs> uh, <laughs> says, what? No. We're too close. Superman turns and goes, Jor-El, my true father? Jor-El says, you belong with your mother and me in the light. Can't you see that it has to be this way? And then it, it, it's amazing here. Pa manifests a shovel. Yeah. I mean, he was just carrying a bayonet. That's his superpower. <laughs> he, he manifests a shovel and smashes Jor-El in the face with it. Nice! <laughs> and then he and Superman fly to the black hole, and back in Smallville... Pa sits up. Ma is right there, and she goes, Thank the Lord, Pa. I brought Clark back to us, Ma. Pa, oh, Pa, you just lie back and tell me all about it. Clark is back. Is he? Now, I, you know, I, I love Ma and Pa. I think they're an integral part of the Superman deal here, but uh, isn't it weird when they refer to each other it, as Ma and Pa? Really is. If you hear, you see that, too, like sometimes <laughs> highfalutin fancy couples, you know, mother, you know. Hello, I, mother. I, yes. I, can't, I can't deal with that. It's too weird. <laughs> no. eh? Now, we join Lois, who's on her return flight from Smallville to Metropolis, when suddenly a red and blue blur buzzes the plane. Lois says, what's everyone looking at? All I see is a red blur. She thinks to herself, Could it? Lois Lane, get a hold of yourself. There are hundreds of superpowered beings in this world. And when the plane touches down, it seems everywhere Lois goes, all anyone can talk about is Superman. Like, they've seen him. People Whoa. have seen him. He's back. Well, hey, what's going on? Yeah. On the news, various eyewitnesses are interviewed. A reporter goes, Can you describe your encounter, Cindy? And Cindy says, I drew a soup picture of the man who got my kitty out of the tree. He said his name was Superman. Oh, and he smelled kind of funny, too. Hmm. Another scene, the reporter goes, In Centennial Park, a stolen cab was prevented from running down a jogger. Jogger says, I mean, like, these creeps are trying to turn me into roadkill. And then suddenly he's there. He was, like, not as big as I thought he'd be, but he was gorgeous. Oh, yeah, it was him. You know, Superman. In Suicide Slum, a tenement fire could have been worse. My husband and I got my boy Elton out, but the baby's room was... Look, no one could get in there. It was flaming and stuff, but he saved my baby. That's Superman. The story wasn't much different at the North Point Nuclear Power Plant. Foreman says, Hey, I don't care who he was. We were ten seconds from China Syndrome when he showed up and sealed the containment tank. And finally, a Metropolis woman who was attacked in the laundry room of her apartment building. This used to be a safe building. I was doing my wash when this guy grabbed me. Suddenly, he crashes through the wall and, well, kept that sneeze from hurting me. I'm not sorry my attacker's dead. He sure won't threaten anyone ever again. The attacker's dead? Mm, That's Mm. weird. 
Right. Uh, we wrap up with Lois at the Centennial Park Memorial with Inspector Henderson. With all the sightings, she's just got to know. So they enter, and... Lois says, He's gone. To which Henderson replies, Not really. I'd say from the look of things that he's back. Superman's back. And that's the end of the story, but not the end of the issue. Whoa, yeah, that's why we got four cameos at the end, which will... Uh, the reason why there are four of them will become evident very soon. <laughs> very quickly. Uh, cameo number one by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanov. A pair of gangs fight over some oversized guns called Toastmasters. The woman known as the White Rabbit looks on, pleased with that with Superman out of the way, Metropolis is hers for the taking. And this is her first appearance, uh, by the way, but we'll see a lot more of her in the future if you keep reading Superman. Uh, the police drive up and the gangs disperse. And from the rubble of one of the buildings destroyed during the Doomsday Massacre, a man rises. And he says, Doomsday. Gotta stop Doomsday. It's a very large, bald black man. But we're not telling you anything you don't already know if you're looking at it. It doesn't look like him, but it sure sounds like Superman. Hmm. Our second cameo is by Roger Stern and Jackson Geis. A would-be carjacker is stopped. By a man in a cape and visor. Yeah, he says, She's firing! The guy goes, Huh? Hey, don't go sneaking up on me, man. It ain't safe. <laughs> nice cape. Who are you supposed to be? Zorro? You would have stolen that man's car. You tried to kill him. That makes you my enemy. Now the dude opens fire into the cape man's chest, illuminating it just enough to make out a very familiar logo. Yeah. When, when he sees it, the bum attempts to flee, but our mystery man gives chase, finally descending on him, looking very much like... Superman? Oh. In the third Ooh. cameo by Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet, over at Cadmus Labs, the Guardian rushes toward Lab 13, where an explosion just de- jammed the door shut. A soldier named Silvestri tries to gently nudge the door with a bazooka. Sure. Uh, once inside, then they find an empty pod with what looks like Superman's torn cape caught on the broken glass. Guardian notices a Dr. Picard hanging from the ceiling wrapped in piping. There he goes, It's their fault, all right. They're clones, at least. Oh, 13 gave me some trouble. Started suddenly fighting off the input like a man possessed. Then those newsboys broke him loose. He reveals that the newsboys and this. Number 13 escaped through the air ducts. At that moment, the five newsboys and a guest pop out of the other end of the ducts. Number 13 says, Thanks. To which Tommy goes, No problem. I mean, us newsboys kind of belong at the project. But you? Quilt. Not like you need it, but good luck, Superboy. Hey, don't ever call me Superboy. Hey, look, it's Superboy. And then we have our final cameo by Dan Jurgens. It's morning in Metropolis, and the sun rises over the shimmery skyline. A family of tourists is walking down Broadway or whatever block the Daily Planet building's on uh, when their son notices the Superman memorial plaque commemorating the very spot he died on while saving the city. Now, this isn't the original plaque, is it? No, no, actually, it's not. The original read, In memoriam, Superman killed on this spot while defending the city. While this one reads, in memory of Superman, killed on this spot while defending Metropolis. First one had to be made out of copper, probably, and turned green, right? Got patina, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and we know that that's not one of Superman's favorite colors. That's true. Uh, Now, anyway, uh, while the family admires the plaque, Superman arrives. He picks up the plaque and incinerates it. 
Yes, now these panels are kind of like Austin powering the left side of Superman's face. And when we finally do get a good look at him, well, hell, he's a cyborg. And now uh, he was that's even, the end of the issue. Yeah, he was even... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I will also worth mentioning, sorry, this issue is Jerry Ordway's last. And what a time to leave these books, right, when everything was changing over again. Mm-hmm. Well, more evidence, you know, to, to some people. Uh, previews asked... Uh, uh, they interviewed Jerry Ordway, and they asked him, given all the exciting stories currently happening in the Superman titles, this must be a tough time for you to leave. Yeah, Jerry answers with, oh, yeah, but I made my decision about six months ago, long after we planned the death of Superman. I'm leaving because I don't have the same emotional commitment to just writing Superman than I did when I was writing and drawing it. I wrote and drew it for a long time, and it really makes sense for me to leave on a high note. And we are going to pause on a high note, I hope. We're finding it to be a high note. Uh, when we come back, we're going to read those four uh, intro issues that all came out on the same day, as we just mm-hmm. found out, uh, which will you know, clarify more of what we've gotten hints of in these uh, epilogues or whatever we call them. What do we call these things? Cameos? Cameos, that's fine, yeah. <laughs> the sightings. That's yes. right. These little, these little, yeah, the, the uh, Superman sightings. So we'll be back after a short break, and we'll go through all those comics. You know, I've been thinking about farewell parties, command performances, going away performances, uh, like the Rolling Stones. Uh, they've had, you know, 93 farewell performances. There used to be some old guy in vaudeville. I can't think of his name right off, and it'll come to me later. Used to have uh, a farewell concert every, I don't know, every three or four weeks. Uh, the, oh, you're going to love this. Florence Foster Jenkins. Remember that name? She was, a, she was a woman who used to sing in New York years and years ago. She had a voice like a seagull getting an enema. She really couldn't sing, but people loved to go to her concerts because one of the reasons uh, was that she would come out on the stage with a basket full of roses, and she would fling them to the audience as she sang the bell song from Lacme, and the audience would gather them up and fling them back at her again, and then she would fling them out again. And the reason I guess I've been thinking about going away parties and farewells and that sort of thing is the death of Superman. Oh, the death of Superman. Yes, DC Comics killed Superman, and it's not as if they hadn't killed Superman before. Uh, let, me, let me show you this. Uh, this is the current magazine. The Death of Superman. Costs $1.25 in this version. Uh, if you buy this bagged version over here, it'll cost you two and a half dollars for the same magazine. But uh, uh, at the end of it, here we see Superman being held by Lois Lane, lamenting that she will not actually get to uh, go to bed with Superman. They haven't yet been married. And here is the fold-out, and it says, The Death of a Legend. Well, uh, the media really went for it. They really bit on it. They really thought that DC Comics was going to kill off its biggest moneymaker. Yeah, sure. And I also believe in the Tooth Fairy, and I also believe if you're in a 747 at 30,000 feet, you're going to hit a pig. Folks, here is a comic book that I pulled out of my collection. My collection? Oh, yes, I am a comic book collector. I bought my first comic in 1939. I've been buying comics all my life. I think in many ways they're America's literature. This comic is dated... December 1983, and on the cover, it says, One angry burst of superpowers, and I killed my best friend. And there's Superman lying dead. But that's not the first time, 1983. Here's an issue of uh, the Comic Buyer's Guide Price Guide. And they did an article called The Death of Superman. Hasn't this been done before? Here is a list. Here is a list of just the ones in the 60s and 70s and 80s of the death of Superman. Folks, DC Comics killed off Superman three times a year. So what's all the noise? Well, the noise is hype. The noise is, let's make some money. Now, if it were 10 cents a comic, 
Like when I bought comics, it'd be a different matter. But they're not. It's a dollar and a quarter. It's two fifty. It's five dollars. And if you think, oh, I'm going to be a collector and I'm going to collect this wonderful comic and it's going to be worth money, folks, they made up two and a half to three million copies of this. If you bought a hundred copies of this ten years from now, they're going to be less than the cover price. And if you think collecting them and putting them in these wonderful little poly bags is going to mean that you're going to make any money, remember that this are all the comics you would have to buy to get a complete run of that doomsday set. And Doomsday, he was going to be a galactic maniac who comes and kills Superman. But the American Society for Looney Tunes, or crazy people, said, oh no, you can't have a, be a, a man uh, escape from an insane asylum. That'll give the bad idea, a bad name. To who? The loonies in the loony bits? Well, now you've got eight issues of Superman bashing Doomsday, and Doomsday bashing him, and nothing else happens. It's just one big stupid fight, and you went for it, and the media went for it. My God, how gullible you are. Don't you ever learn? Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are diving now into the actual comics that comprise the return of the Supermen? Question the mark. The, well, the, the actual <laughs> thing is the reign of the Supermen. Is that, is that just for the collected editions, or was this actually called that? I can't think of it. Was, it was actually called that, yeah. uh, There was no banner. There was a banner on top, right, or something yeah. like this. Uh, yeah, so this is the reign of the Supermen. Boing, anyway, sorry. I guess I guess the uh, mystery is lost now. The there's no more tension in that. So twenty five years, I'll do that. Yeah, exactly. People people know the deal. So we'll just dive right in, starting with Action Comics number six eighty seven. This is titled "Born Again" by Roger Stern and Jackson Goose Goose. Yes, we did it last time, but Geis. I forgot already. Guys, sorry. There we go. Triangle number uh, number twelve out of nineteen ninety three comes with two covers, a deluxe. Die-cut cardstock cover featuring a pretty standard Superman S with the phrase, The Last Son of Krypton is back. And then the newsstand version has an energy-based embryonic Superman in the fetal position. This went on sale April 27, 1993 for $1.50 on the newsstand, and then the uh, die-cut deluxe issue was $1.95. Solicit reads, The Last Son of Krypton returns to action, and this Superman has no qualms about taking a human life. So long as it's the right thing to do. Also, Pa Kent reacts to Superman's tougher approach to crime fighting. Now we open up in Antarctica, where a couple of researchers are watching a particularly intense Aurora Borealis and wondering just why it might be acting up. They consider for a moment that perhaps there's something buried in the ice. And wouldn't you know it, at that very moment, deep below the ice, several Helexy robots yeah. are pumping energy into a great glowing glow, the bleh, great glowing orb. Uh, inside of this orb is a humanoid form. It says, I, I, I am, but where am I? I remember a battle. He steps out of the light. I, I know this place. This is my fortress. But how did I get here? He reaches out to a kilo, uh, to the Kelex bot, and his hand phases right through it. He's directed to a monitor where he can tune in on a satellite transmission that'll fill him in on everything that he's missed. The monitor, but not that monitor, no, says... <laughs> Following a cross-country chase, Superman is faced off against Doomsday in the very heart of Metropolis. Superman has reportedly been seriously injured. And then the scene shifts over. Superman was declared dead at approximately 6.23 p.m. The solemn drum beats as the world's great heroes march along in tribute, following their gallant leader one last time. Dead? Our red man ain't digging the sound of that. 
And so he rushes out from the fortress, hopeful that there might still be some power left in his flesh-and-blood body. And so, at Centennial Park, the wraith of a man attempts to bond with his body, and uh, from the looks of it, it was a success. The cape! I, I can touch it! Hold it! I am alive again! Alive! He steps out from the memorial and finds that the sun is a little too much for his eyes to take. Hmm. Now we shift scenes to check it. Check in on our main man, Bibbo. He's still talking Superman's. Pa- He's taking Superman's passing pretty badly. He looks at a newspaper clipping of them attempting to jumpstart the Man of Steel's heart, and this happened in the Adventures of Superman 498. Over the what? Sorry. Over the radio, he hears that there's a violent crime wave running through Metropolis. And well, if his favorite ain't around to take care of business. I know I'm not man enough to fill your boots, but I'm still going to give it my best shot. And so Bibbo tucks a Superman sweatshirt into a pair of old boxing trunks, which he's wearing over a pair of track pants, which uh, endears him to me because it means that he's a pre-Flashpoint kind of guy. That's right. <laughs> now back at the fortress. Yeah, the mysterious uh, man we will know as the Eradicator says, Bless Krypton and the House of El. And he's also wearing his uh, that that stylish wraparound visor yeah. at this point. A, uh, see it on see it on him and grandmas in Florida everywhere. There's a <laughs> yes. big amber visor. <laughs> <laughs> no, on his monitors he sees all the turmoil going on around the world, and so and, and also he sees that the Superman Snuggy cult is around, proclaiming that he will rise, and so he suits up and heads to Metropolis where he kills that attacker from the sighting cameo in Adventures 500. Oh, right. That was the uh, Metropolis woman. She says, No, I'm not sorry my attacker's dead. He sure won't threaten anyone ever again. Remember her, huh? Now, uh, meanwhile at LexCorp, Lex is pretty ticked at the fact that Superman's body is missing. He says, I swear, Superman's as much trouble to me dead as alive. Supergirl enters despite... Despite him not wanting to be disturbed. Uh, yeah, there really isn't anybody going to hold Supergirl back, no. even though they, they do try. Uh, she's pretty annoyed herself, uh, because Lex didn't tell her that her cousin's body vanished. Out on the streets of Metropolis, it's just a regular day. You know, planes falling out of the sky and stuff. Sure, a man on the street yells, Look! Up in the sky! Hey, it's Superman! In shades! Indeed. Lois Lane conveniently pulls up to the scene in a cab. Hey, you with the cape, hold it right there, buster. And she barges into the crowd. Yeah, one guy says, Superman, let me touch you. Another goes, please, help my child. We need to talk. Get us out of here. And so he picks her up, and they fly away. Superman, come back. Who the, was that? Yeah, how come she rates? Now Lois instructs Superman to place her down on a nearby roof, and notes that while he looks an awful lot like Clark, he has a distinct coldness about him. She also doesn't care much for his new look. Yeah, some other people felt that way reading the book too, but yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Superman never hid his face, and he didn't wear black like an executioner. Oh yeah, we didn't make it clear, but his costume now does have some black in it. Superman, question mark, replies, no, not before. But I have been through much. I have changed. Lois replies, if you're really Superman, tell me who I am, or don't you know me? You? 
Yes, I know you. You're Lois Lane, a reporter. Before my passing, you were an important part of my life. You were the first to write about me. Well, he's not entirely wrong, but yeah. Lois is looking for something a little bit more than that. Yeah, maybe it's something about the being married. I know <laughs> that we were more than friends. You were engaged to marry Clark Kent. Kent loved you very much. He trusted you completely, even with the secret of his double life. Then you are... I am. I am sorry. I grieve for your loss, Ms. Lane. Now this Superman tells Lois that only he's returned. Clark ain't coming back. Hmm. And then he leaves her stranded on the roof. Hey, who says chivalry's dead, huh? Right? I, I really think we should try to compile a list of all the times Lois is left stranded on the I, roof. It, it, many, many times. It's got to be a long list, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, as she is alone on the roof, she's also alone with her thoughts. And in her, to her mind, it comes down to two possibilities. A, this is really Superman, and the Clark half is going to remain buried. Or B, this ain't Superman at all, and somebody figured out that Clark is Superman. <gasps> Okay. Yes. <laughs> that leads us to our next issue. Actually, these are all these these don't lead into one another, but uh No. Because they do all come out the same day. But we will talk next about Superman, the Man of Steel number twenty two. Title is Steel by Luis Simonson and John Bogdanov. Has a triangle number of thirteen for nineteen ninety three. This deluxe cover features a metallic Superman S with the Man of Steel is back written below it. The newsstand has a uh, version has John Henry Irons swinging a hammer. Uh, of course, on sale April 27th, 1993, for a buck 50 newsstand, a buck 95 deluxe. Our solicitation reads The Man of Steel returns to Metropolis to rid Suicide Slum of the latest crime wave led by a new ruthless crime lord. Jeb Stewart is also back in town and comes to see Lois Lane in the wake of Clark Kent's disappearance. I want to correct Diamond Previews there. It's actually <laughs> Jeb Friedman who returns uh, to town, though Jeb Stewart might have been a little bit more interesting considering that he's, you know, a haunted tank. Yeah, that would have uh, really added a lot to the story. <laughs> but uh, at least it does keep to the story, unlike a lot of solicits today where they have sure. often no bearing on the comic that actually comes out. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now we open this up with Shaquille O'Neal dropping some homespun wisdom on the neighborhood kids. That's not Shaq. I mean... Come on, Chris, look at him. And he's holding a basketball. All right, maybe it is. So he tells the tots, including Keith and one named Zoid, the story of John Henry and how he would use 20-pound hammers to race a steam-driven steel drill to see who could drill more holes back at the factory. And legend has it, which, by the way, is not actually the legend, but anyway, (laughs) uh, legend has it, he won. The story wraps, and the kids disperse right into a drive-by shooting. Zoid takes a Toastmaster blast to the gut. Mr. Johnson, the shack-looking storyteller, rushes into the seat and saves the remaining kids. One kid goes, Zoid! Another kid, they killed Zoid! It's probably too soon for a you bastards, right? Yeah, well, I mean, the kid's skeleton is smoldering in the street. Probably this wouldn't be the time. Uh, Johnson leaps onto the gunner's car and grabs at the Toastmaster. One of the passenger goes, it's impossible, man. No, that's that fantastic Thor bad guy who pops everything. Oh, I like he blips, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the, the passenger continues, he's breaking the gun. Peel him off, man. You got it, bro. And the driver then sideswipes a wall, smearing Mr. Johnson's blood all along the way. Later, at the hospital, Henry Johnson. 
Hey, that's John Henry backwards. Say, he's visited by Myra. This is Keith's guardian. You remember Keith, right? He's the kid that promised not to spray paint the subway right before he spray painted the subway. Oh, yes, him. But it was all, it was to help uh, Superman. Hello. Um, Myra <laughs> Allen, no relation, first appeared in Superman, the A Man of Steel number two, August 1991, and was created by Louise Simonson and John Bogdanoff. Kid O'Keefe made his first appearance in Superman The Man of Steel number 1, July 1991 cover, and was also created by Louise and John. Now, Keith hops onto Henry's bed and laments the fact that Superman's dead. He feels that if Superman were still alive, maybe Zoid could have been saved. Oh, man. Only his brother Noid made it, unfortunately. (laughs) I know. (laughs) We all avoid him, so anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Henry Henry then shares with him the time that Superman saved his own life. Uh, Henry was uh, attempting to save a falling construction worker up in the steel, and his line gave out. Superman grabbed him, and if the art is to be believed, something of a mental connection between the two men happened just as they touched hands. He then shares his experience from the Doomsday Massacre. Henry was in one of those buildings that Superman and Doomsday tore through, but we already knew that. Once he's released from the hospital, uh, Henry returns home. Uh, I, if, if, if he lives in a fortune teller's basement, anyway. Well, I mean, she's got one hell of a for fireplace down there. That sounds like a youth, uh, and never mind. Um, now, we watch as Henry Johnson, John Henry, Shaquille O'Neal, you know, that guy. We watch him as he forges a steel helmet in the fire. Yeah, he thinks to himself. John Henry fought the machine and won. What I'm fighting is a deadlier kind of machine. What I help put in motion. What I'm gonna stop, even if it kills me. Just then, a firebomb hits the fortune teller's building and uh, makes me wonder, did, did she see that coming? Yeah, but you can't stop the future from happening. Anyway, uh, Steel <laughs> busts through the wall and rescues her. And she goes, who? You're the psychic. You tell me. She tells Steele that uh, she does drop a little knowledge on him. She says she wasn't alone in the building, so he's got to go back and pull some more folks to safety. Now we meet up with Lois Lane, who has just noticed that her old intergang informant, Jeb Friedman, has come to town. Jeb first appeared in Superman The Man of Steel number 4, October 1991 cover, and was created by Louise and John, and he has a crush on Lois ever since. He's quite the skeevy-looking individual. He goes... I heard about Clark. I'm sorry, sweetie. He was an okay guy. (laughs) He then suggests that he take her away from all this. She says no to splitting town, but agrees to a cup of joe. Now Lex Luthor does what he does best, which is watch a wall full of television screens. If you got it, if you got it, flunked it, right? Of course. (laughs) On one of these screens, the psychic lady from earlier suggests that Superman's spirit has entered the body of this brand new man of steel. Lex ain't entirely tickled by the thought, uh, and he's also worried that this suicide slum savior might screw up his super weapons plan. Now back with Steel, he busts in on a shady super weapons deal and takes a Toastmaster load to his chest for his trouble. He then realizes that this is a weapon that he designed. He feels as though every life taken with them is on his head. He gets up and rivets a gangbanger to a wall and begins to interrogate him. Out of view, the white rabbit's on the scene, and she has Steel's head in her crosshairs. Before reconsidering and blowing the brains out of the head of her own man, who is just about to start singing like a canary. Now back at the Daily Planet, Lois is going through all the new Superman headlines and finally arrives at one talking about Steel. She called him a walk-in spirit. Can something like that actually be possible? Our man Jeb's nearby and he replies, 
It's not possible, Lois. How can it be possible? Come here, listen to me. Superman dead. Clark's dead. But I'm alive and so are you. Right now, you need someone to take care of you. Grab your jacket. We'll talk more about it over dinner. Yeah, I hate this guy already. Any of the worst? What a creep. Uh, this issue wraps up with Jonathan Kent in his hospital bed catching a bit of news about this Man of Steel on the TV. Luther is, of course, also watching <laughs> probably on one of his many TVs <laughs> and wonders what it might be like if he could finally have a Man of Steel in his pocket. Mm-hmm. Now, next issue we'll talk about is Superman Volume 2, number 78, titled Alive by Dan Jurgens, Triangle number 14 of 1993. This also had two covers, just like the other uh, we're talking about. And the fourth one will likely also, also have eight <laughs> covers. Of course, the first one was a deluxe die cut featuring a sort of shiny Superman S with the phrase, The Man of Tomorrow is Back. Standard cover has the cyborg Superman chaining Doomsday up. Uh, on sale up April 27th, 1993 for $1.50 on the newsstand, $1.95 special die cut deluxe version. Solicit reads, Superman returns, rebuilt for the future, and he makes it his business to dispose of Doomsday permanently. Also, Lois comes face to face with this man of tomorrow, and she is horrified by what has happened to him. We open with Lois Lane following up on on a Superman sighting at LexCorp. A Dr. Meyer lets her in and even produces a well-shadowed photo of Superman in action. And by well-shadowed, we mean we can only get a really good look at the area around his right eye. You know, but that area does look just like (laughs) Superman. Just like it. Uh, Speaking of Superman, he's currently rattling some cages over at Star Labs. He wants to know where Doomsday's body is. Now, Lois hops back in her car and prepares for an extended stay in gridlock purgatory. She flips on her police scanner and hears the news that Superman was just raising some hell at Star. She phones Jimmy to confirm the story. Why, is, is Jimmy some kind of authority on this now? Right? I know. <laughs> no, Jimmy does know something. He says that the, they just got the word from Mayor Berkowitz that this indeed did just go down. So next stop, Cadmus, where Westfield and the Geeks are alerted that they have a very powerful and persistent prowler. As the Weapon Masters, or whatever we were calling them, you know, those, <laughs> those flying guys, right. as they get into position, into position, a red blur blows right by them. Uh, worth mentioning, we still have not seen this Superman's face just yet. And then the Guardian arrives and stands around. Did he uh, argue with Westfield at least? He's, it's coming. It's very soon. Okay. Uh, okay. Westfield orders the onboard blasters to shoot to kill, but it doesn't turn out all that well. No, our man goes, your weapons can't hurt me. Give me what I want and I'll leave. Westfield says, damn, turn the lights back on so I can see who I'm up against. Lights go on with a ka Didn't she marry Maury Povich? Oh, I miss her. She was good. (laughs) The R man goes, there's no way you're going to stop me. I've come for doomsday. It can't be. And we finally see him. Cyborg Superman in an oddly Shakespearean pose. It's as though he's beckoning beckoning for Juliet to come to the balcony or something. It's just really strange. It really is. It's unusual. It's not what you expect. uh, Hands on hips would be the typical Superman. But uh, (laughs) the Guardian says, this has got to be some kind of sick joke. I watched you die with my own eyes. I was there when they buried you. I've come back, Harper. I'm different due to the damage. But it's me. I am Superman. 
The Cadmus boys are in no hurry to tell this odd Terminator 2 extra where they've got Doomsday stashed, but no worries. Superman can rely on his own powers to find him. And he does. Burrowing deep below Cadmus to a high-security vault, Superman faces his killer. Westfield says, You're breaking a whole slew of federal laws, mister. And not even the real Superman was powerful enough to open that vault. I'm more than I used to be, Westfield. I'm part machine. And just like that, he lifts his robotic wrist, revealing a mess of cyberlock pickiness kind of folding out of it, and uh, after a few moments, grants him access to the vault. Yes, he sees Doomsday and goes, Destroyer, berserker, murderer. They never even bothered to wash my blood off you, Butcher. Even in death, you wear it like a badge of honor. Superman grabs Doomsday, chains, pipes, tubes, and all, and flies out of Cadmus. Somewhat, all right, but totally conveniently, Lois Lane is right outside wallowing in the rain, and she catches what she believes to be her fiancé flying off with Doomsday stuffed under his arm. Once they reach space, Doomsday ties, Superman ties Doomsday's body to a chunk of space rock and hurls it into the infinite void. Isn't that that David Foster Wallace novel that nobody ever finished? I believe, suddenly, into the, into the sub, <laughs> or rather, I don't know. Now, uh, back on Earth, Lois is still standing in the rain. Get yourself together, girl. It couldn't have been him. It must have been, had to be, someone else. You are Lois Lane, the one who first named me. Oh! And the two chat for a time. Superman admits that he's missing a lot of his memory, though he can remember Kansas and the name Kent. Lois suggests they pay a visit to Emil Hamilton to verify the cyborg's claims. Uh, Emil Hamilton, by the way, first appeared back in Adventures of Superman number 424, this January 1987 cover, and he was created by Marv Wolfman and Jerry Ordway. At Hamilton's lab, he confirms that the biological half of this Superman matches the originals down to the T. Not even the slightest bit of deviation. Which definitely had me thinking. Lois says, Mm -hmm. what is it, Professor? What are you telling me here? I'm telling you that with all my tests and data have me thoroughly convinced, I I would say with great probability that this is Superman come back to life. But that's not the end of the issue. The issue actually ends in deep space. Caption reads, It has been said that in space, no one can hear you scream. True. But if we could bend the laws of science and assume that we could hear... For just a few seconds, we would hear laughter. Of course, Whoa. that's Doomsday. Right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> now, the final of our four issues here is Adventures of Superman number 501. Title is dot dot dot, When He Was a Boy by Carl Kiesel and Tom Grummet. This one comes with a triangle number of 15 for 1993. The die-cut cover features a sort of denim-looking Superman S with the phrase, The Metropolis Kid is Back. The newsstand version has a very attitudinal super... Bo- uh, uh, well, mm. Conell, we'll yeah, say. Be careful. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to get hit. Uh, <laughs> he's standing next to some graffiti that he just tagged with his smoky finger. Uh, it reads, Truth and Justice, My Way. Now, this one on sale, like every other issue, April 27th, 1993, for a buck fifty newsstand, a buck ninety-five die cut deluxe. The solicit reads Superman revels in his return to the skies, and the gauntlet he runs on the first day just about does him in. Also, young WGBS reporter Tana Moon steals the attention of the Man of Steel from Lois Lane. 
We open the story with a group of uh, nerdy punks driving a stolen taxi, shooting at the Superman memorial statue. Uh, one of them looks a lot like our man Mitch, but it isn't. Yeah, but uh, enough that we hate him already. Yes. <laughs> uh, the goofballs then notice a jogger who we met briefly back in Adventures 500. This is when the reporter was talking to all those people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they decide to chase her down for a business opportunity. Normally, we'd assume what that what they mean by that, but with these guys, who knows? Yeah, the uh, the guy who looks like Mitch goes, Yo, crew! I see us a killer business opportunity. And then a guy in uh, John Lennon glasses, uh, Lennon glasses guy says, Word that! I think I'm going to add word that to my everyday vernacular. I think that might be the name of the first hit single from Axl Rose in the band, right? Word that, it sounds like. (laughs) Taxi driver says, She got some prime assets, man. Get it? Call invest in what she's selling. And that's where the analogy kind of falls apart. I don't know what he's talking about. Went too far with that. Uh, just as they're about to run her over, Super uh, Man revive, arrives on the scene. And he stops the taxi with one hand. Lennon Glasses guy says, oh, oh, man. And then our Super Boy Man says, that's Man of Steel to you, punks. And the jogger, who's still there, says, you... <laughs> You can't be. Superman? Well, now, let's see. Big red S on the chest? Check. Fly? Like a bird or even a plane, lucky for you. Super strong? No doubt about it. And then he grabs the Lennon glasses off that one geek. Thankfully, this is the last that we see of him. Otherwise, we have to think up a new name, and there's not really a lot yeah. to say about him. You know, guy without Lennon glasses and yeah. leaps to mind. Former, former Lennon glasses exactly. owner. <laughs> Meanwhile, over in Suicide Slum, uh, Super Dude, that's Bibbo, by the way, is delivering sandwiches to the poverty-stricken slumites. And they're a bit incredulous. Yeah, one slumite goes, These things safe, man? I mean, somebody stapled this plastic wrap. A fellow named Deke says, Bibbo ain't forcing it down your trout, kid. And Bibbo says, That's okay, Deke. I know Superman would have done it better. I'm just doing what I can, trying to help out like he would have wanted. And the slumite goes, Man, is it supposed to smell this way? Before we can find just, out, just how that uh, sandwich was supposed to smell, the little group hears an old woman crying. She's tied three puppies in a bag and tossed it into the bay. She couldn't afford to feed them and didn't want them to suffer. So, drown them? Is that the right? best? Is that the best way to ease suffering, Chris? I don't think so. <laughs> uh, Bibbo hops into the drink, but it looks like he was too late. Well, maybe not. One puppy survived. The dog-killing old lady decides to let him keep it since she was gonna drown it anyway. You know, she's like, "Ah, well, I drowned too. That's good enough." He names the pup Krypton. And it's just too bad that dog name tags in Metropolis can only fit six letters. Yeah, that's one of the weirdest mm-hmm. city ordinances uh, <laughs> uh, in, in Metropolis, yeah. But uh, at the Daily Planet, Lois Lane f- finds a very interesting visitor sitting at her desk. Yes, it's our boy. He goes, Lois, 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 I thought we had a deal. You know, I save the world, you write it up. We both end up on page one. But no, I get page six. No byline. Right under Hammer Hobble's home. You know, I would have gotten rid of Doomsday, too. I was getting around to it. It's worth mentioning there's a newspaper clipping on Lois's desk that reads, Ordway to sponsor Batson Expedition, which was the next yes. thing he worked on, right? The OGN. Mm-hmm. He, yeah, I did the OGN and then into uh, and then Power of Shazam. Right, yeah. Power of Shazam out of that. 
Uh, sorry, Lois Lane says, you can't be Superman. The one and only. Contrary to current... Re- wow, my death really aged you, huh, Lois? Jimmy's... Yeah, really. <laughs> Don't ever say that to a lady, folks. Uh, then whether, you asked her how much she weighed. Whether you're super or not, that's a very bad idea. Uh, <laughs> Jimmy scoffs at the thought that this kid was really is really Superman. Even used the verboten Superboy word. He'll, he pays for it pretty quickly. The kid yeah. then reveals his secret origin. He's a clone of Superman, which we already knew, but it is news to Lois, or would be if she was buying any of it. Now, the kid tries to figure out a way to convince her, but suddenly his attention is now focused on newcomer Tana Moon. Mm-hmm. Now, just as Lois is about to refer to him as Clark, the kid bugs out after the new girl. He takes her to a nearby roof, which, you know, kind of fits the Real Steel Deal's M.O. Yeah. Uh, He decides to give her the exclusive scoop on his super-secret origin, which he shares with her on a TV news program. You'll never guess who is watching this TV program. (laughs) (laughs) It's our favorite couch potato, Lex Luthor, who's in a wheelchair, and I don't remember why. Yeah, probably Um, probably from sitting inertly watching television for too long. Constantly. Yeah. Now, he's pretty ticked off to learn that what they've been up to at Cadmus, and at this point, nobody really knows that they used his DNA to make the Super Soup. Over at WGBS, the switchboards are lit up, and everyone loves Super, uh, the kid, the Metropolis yeah. kid. <laughs> Tana goes, he doesn't like being called Superboy. Vincent Ed says, you can call a Beppo the Super Monkey for all I care, Tana. I just want that kid on the air as much as possible. Beppo the Super Monkey, by the way, was a Kryptonian test animal used by Jor-El when he was testing the rocket that he'd eventually send Kal-El to Earth in. Uh, Beppo stowed away when Krypton went boom, and the little guy first appeared in Superboy number 76, his October 1959 cover, and he was created by Otto Binder and George Papp, though neither would probably admit to that. No, one of the Legion of Super Pets, along with some yes, great indeed. Yeah. And now, uh, one of the news execs questions the wisdom of focusing on just this Superman and not all four, Vinny don't see a problem. Uh, he decides that they're going to have to, quote, create a legend and ask for some suggestions on a, so- a surefire way for young Superman to prove himself. One exec comments that intergang boss Steelhand has been lurking in su- Suicide Slum. Now, Steelhand was actually Mr. Miracle's first foe. He appeared in Mr. Miracle number one back in April 1971, created by Jack Kirby. And has only appeared like twice since. Yeah, so he was right. Real just, deep cut. Exactly. Just <laughs> yank him out a, uh, you know, paste him in there. WGBS drops the kid in Suicide Slum where he's immediately surrounded by a group of bad guys from Double Dragon. Uh, he beats the hell out of them pretty quickly. Then, punk rock women with semi-automatic weapons pop up, probably from the video game Narc, and they start firing. <laughs> yes. Luckily, the kid's bulletproof and he pounds the ground, sends the ladies flying. Then a bus with spiked bumper with spike bumper ramps him into a nearby building, and that only ticks him off. Oh, that was his only jacket. Yeah, he goes, okay, trying to kill me is one thing, but that was my only jacket. See? This means war. He then bursts into Steel Hand's hidey hole and punches him in the face. Man, he must have really liked that jacket. There's only one, you know, it's a yeah. kind. Now, we we rejoin Lois as she tries to get some answers from the Kents. Uh, Martha assures Lois that Clark at 15 was nothing like this boy. 
But then again, this super kid wasn't raised by the cats. Mm-hmm. That's the, that's the wrinkle, folks. Mm-hmm. The kid meets up with fellow Cadmus guy, the Guardian, and by now is wearing a brand new and fresh jacket, complete with the Superman logo on the back. Imagine the uh, butt kicking you'd get if you wore one of those to school. I know, really. Well, at least it would hide the uh, Death of Superman armband that we got already true. beaten up for. <laughs> That's true. Back at WGBS, Tana meets with creepy old Vinny. He tells her that she's the new Cat Grant, and you can take that however you like. Uh, <laughs> a lot of gross ways to do that. Mm-hmm. They plan Superboy's next televised super feat, and the issue in the week of Super Returns wraps up with the hobbled Lex Luthor numero dos interrogating Packard from Cadmus. He was under the impression that Superman couldn't be cloned. Well, you know what they say about making assumptions, right, Chris? It's mm-hmm. uh, going to make an arse of you and me. Indeed. But that that does conclude the reign of the Superman, you know, the, the four issues that... The opening salvo. Right, of this uh, thing. And, and I remember reading these very well. I may not have gotten much mm-hmm. further than this, but I definitely read these four issues uh and it was it was crazy, you know. Um, like, like I've been kind of hinting the entire time going through, all these little hints were sort of suggesting that maybe they really weren't going to bring back Clark Kent Superman. Yeah. Right. Uh, or I, at I, least keep him off the table for a bit longer. Uh, you know, I, I I really did a lot of thinking about this. I mean, we were also dealing with it with a situation where Barry Allen had died and stayed dead. Stayed dead, uh, which was not expected at all. I, everyone was like, "Ah, he'll be back in a year," you know. And, he, mm-hmm. and Supergirl uh, too. Supergirl also, that's true. Even though mm-hmm. they had like fake Supergirl, but yeah, yeah. The, the Kara, Kara never came back. Even though other things did come back, like the Legion, but uh, people felt like there might be a finality to it. And while even, I mean, I guess when this came out, I was sixteen or seventeen, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was definitely old enough to know that they weren't going to get rid of the intellectual. Sale of the property known as Superman, and I knew that it was going to have to look like Superman. They weren't going to change all the bed sheets and toy. You know what I mean? It was going to have to look similar to him. Um, there were candidates here. You know what I mean? Sure. So for me, I remember. I remember reading with that eye. I looked at it like it wasn't going to be Steel because he's is a guy no. in a steel suit, and it wasn't likely to be the cyborg Superman. Because yeah, he, had, he just looked evil. He looked evil, and half his face is missing, and that's not going to work yeah. for. Uh, you know, to- for plush toys. The, and, you know, the, yeah, the, the lunchbox. Make the cartoon look very strange. Uh, even though, like I said, that DNA thing did set my mind to work. Like, sure. What is that about? Uh, but to me, I, I think I, I think I came out of it thinking it would be the Eradicator. I, I'm the same exact way. Um, yeah. even, even though I also saw a scenario where the, uh, you know, Metropolis kid, the uh, boy of tomorrow, whatever they called him in this, mm. that he could have been like artificially aged. That could, you know, a lot of comic booky ways sure. to make that work. But yeah, they really, did that with Impulse just a little while after this, so that's true. he was aged really yeah. quickly, so it could definitely have happened. It's It definitely was something I, I, I could have seen happening, but I really looked at it like Eradicator already looked like him, and what they were going to bring in was essentially a meaner Superman, which I thought was sort of in keeping. A grim and gritty 1990s right. extreme Superman, uh, yeah. Which actually would become a, a common theme throughout the rest of the decade, but... Uh, yeah, that's definitely where I where I came out of it thinking I was like, wow, I guess this will probably might be the new Superman. Um, that's not what happened, as we know now. No. But uh, no, yeah. I was not invested in the character so much. Uh, the, like the death was my first Superman story, so I was kind of hoping that it was going to be the cyborg. Wow, I, I I didn't think it was going to be him, but I thought because I mean that one little corner of face he has looks a lot. Like it looks exactly like Superman, right? <laughs> and, uh, and it just seemed like it's like okay, well, I guess they could move forward with this. They can always 
they can always, you know, fix his, the rest of his face. Put a latex face, you know, fl- yeah. the Floronic man sprays a fake skin on himself. Just sure. shoot that on Superman's face. And, uh, and I mean, and what, Terminator came, uh, 2 came out when? Not not too far before this, right? Uh, I think 1992, exactly. Yeah, the, yeah so right in, right in this wheelhouse. There, there was definitely some synergy there, I'll tell you this. No question <laughs> in my mind. Yeah, they definitely were like, oh, they, that did very well. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you make a good point. There are ways to get around it. That also could have been a thing where, you know, when he gets hit, that can get scraped off, and you know that can like always cable. be exactly, yeah. precisely like if there can be a freaky reveal that he's a robot underneath. But uh, I just didn't see it because of the the look. But you're right; they could have worked around that. Um, sure, I didn't think it was going to happen, but it, it definitely could have if they decided to to go down that road. I mean, I'd like to say that I, I there was a lot of buzz at the comic shop, but at this point, I really was talking to no one about comics. But I was getting these comics. Uh, something I'd forgotten years later. Like mm. I remember b- being a teenager. Reading them and thinking about it and being like, which one is this going to be? Uh, I also want to say that when you first said you wanted to do this 25th anniversary thing, yeah, my first thing was like, fine, but I want to concentrate on the uh, Metropolis kid, you know, the the Superboy yeah, one. Superboy. That's because, but at the time, I want to make it clear, I did hate it because I was a teenager <laughs> myself, and, and we can smell our own. You know what I mean? And yep. it was it was totally pandering to. An idea of, you know, of like, you know, mouthy teenagers or whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, I don't want you to think I loved it from the beginning, but. Yeah, as like a, the sunny, the sunny D kids, you know, with the purple stuff. The whole, I mean, the whole thing, it's just like another type of Mitch, another one. There's, there's all these yeah. like phony adolescents in the in comics all the time. Uh, I've just come to love it more as an adult because it's so Absolutely. over the top and silly. And uh, I had a great time reading that issue and all the issues we did today, but. Mm-hmm. We do have more to tell the people, as always. We do, we do. We're going to tie it all together by discussing other replacement, but not legacy heroes. So these are the stand-ins, but this isn't the uh, this isn't the the sidekick stepping into the role. It isn't. No. We're not going to be talking about flashes here. Yeah, no, no, uh, no sons or daughters or whatever. Yeah, yeah. we're only going to talk about one Green Lantern too, because he was initially a stand-in. Right. But we're going to start. By talking about Thor and his, you know, uh, stand-in, the man we now know as Thunderstrike. Uh, Eric Masterson first appeared in Thor number 391. This is May 1988 cover, created by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. He was initially a side character in the book, and he would eventually merge with Thor. That happened in Thor number 408, October 1989. He would then eventually take over as Thor, and that was Thor 432, May 1991, and that was the issue that celebrated Thor's 350th appearance. Wow. Uh, which tells me that we celebrated some of the silliest stuff back I in know, the days. I know, really. Any, any old milestone will do. Yeah, so let, let's, throw a, let's throw something, uh, an inventory story from the drawer in there and charge him a couple bucks more. <laughs> uh, now, he would remain as Thor for a couple years uh, until issue 459, this is February 1993, and that's when the real deal returned, leaving Eric to settle into the Thunderstrike persona. Uh, instead of the, you know, Mjolnir or whatever it is, he would wield a mace. Sure. Uh, his self-titled series would run for 24 issues, running from June 1993 through September 1995. Writer-creator Tom DeFalco had famously claimed that at the time of cancellation, Thunderstrike was outselling Thor and the Avengers combined. Uh, I gotta tell you, Tom must be one heck of a guy because nobody seems to have really crunched those numbers yeah. to throw it back at. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> whatever you say, Mr. DeFalco, that's fine. You got it, sir. Uh... 
We got War Machine, who stood in for Iron Man. This was Jim Rhodey Rhodes, who first appeared in Iron Man number 118, January 1979, cover date, and was created by Dave Michelini and John Byrne. He would take over for Tony Stark as Iron Man while he was dealing with his addiction to alcohol. That was in Iron Man number 170, uh, May 1983, cover date. As Iron Man, Rhodey would take part in Secret Wars, uh, which was sort of a weird switcheroo over there. Uh, check out episode 9 of Weird Comics History for a long-form discussion on that. And he was also a founding mem- member of the West Coast Avengers. Tony would eventually come back, and not a moment too soon. Rhodey was experiencing terrible headaches from the cybernetics and the Iron Man armor. In Iron Man number 284, that was September 1992 cover dates, Tony Stark died. Yeah, uh, we know, we know. Leaving CEO as uh, Rhodes as CEO of Stark Enterprises. Back into the armor, he went as well, but this time it was that war machine armor. When Tony revealed that, ta-da, I'm not dead after all, Rhodes was rightly ticked off and severed their friendship, but he'd eventually get over it, and between then and now, probably died and returned a few times to boot. As, as is the case. Yeah. Um, now we're going to talk about John Walker. He stood in for Captain America. We know him better as U.S. Agent. He first appeared in Captain America number 323, November 1986 cover. Uh, this was the Marvel Comics 25th anniversary issue. It was the, the headshot surrounded by like a like a garland of heroes. Oh, right. That they had. Uh, that was a very odd, uh, you know. Big deal, 25th anniversary thing, but what are you going to do? Now, he first made the scene as the Super Patriot, who, if we're being honest, is basically a right-wing straw man character, uh, created by Mark Grunewald and Paul Neary. Uh, In Captain America 332, August 1987, Captain America is ordered via the Pentagon that he must become an official entity of the United States government. This would later be revealed to be a Red Skull plot, but... You know, we didn't know that then, and neither did Cap, so he quit. The following month, in Captain America number 333, the September 1987 cover, the U.S. government approaches the Super Patriot about taking over as Captain America. And he does! And, uh, for, and as an incentive, he gets three Buckies. Uh, two of the Buckies, later known as Right Winger and Left Winger, mm-hmm. reveal Walker's secret identity which causes New Cap's parents to be murdered. Uh, Steve Rogers returns to the role in Captain America 339, March 1988. John Walker is thought to be assassinated in Captain America 351, March 1989. But it was all a ruse to set up his new superhero persona, U.S. Agent. That was in Captain America 354, June 1989. Uh, From here, he's joined several teams, and like the rest of the Marvel Universe, probably spent some time with dot, 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 Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. as a last name. Oh, I'm sure he has. Yeah, everyone has. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only time that Captain America had to have a stand-in. Falcon also stood in for him. Uh, That's a Harlem orphan Sam Snap Wilson first appeared in Captain America number 117, September 1969 by Stan Lee and Gene Colan. He was a criminal given the power to talk to birds after being exposed to the Cosmic Cube. Uh, Inspired by Cap, with the help of a flying harness given to him by the Black Panther, he becomes the hero Falcon, who has a sidekick hawk named Red Wing. Uh, Now, way, way in the future, that was 1969. Yes. Now, in uh, Captain America Volume 7, number 21, August 2014, he had the, Steve Rogers had the super soldier serum sucked out of him by, I think, Iron Nail or something like this. Uh, Steve Rogers becomes prematurely old and cannot perform his heroing Captain America's duties, 
So in issue number 25, December 2014 cover date, he asks Sam to take up the role of Captain America and gives him the shield. Sam ultimately wears kind of a hybrid costume that's like a white cap outfit, but with wings. Mm-hmm. Sort of like a falcon meets the Captain America. They blended in. Actually, didn't look didn't look terrible, but... Looks pretty good, yeah. Yeah, uh, he was actually Captain America for quite a while. He uh, Sam mm-hmm. returned the shield to Steve in Secret Empire number 10, which just happened, October 2017 cover by Nick Spencer and many artists. So mm. yeah, he held on to it for three years there. Yeah, is he, is he back to the Falcon now? Or two years, I guess. Uh, yeah, he's, as far as okay. I know, actually... I, I don't want to misspeak. I don't know that. Yeah, I don't but either. I know he Steve might Rogers, still be a cap. <laughs> I know that Steve Rogers and not an evil Hydra-controlled Steve Rogers is in, is Captain America, so we'll find out. I don't know. I, uh, yeah, maybe we will. I don't know. <laughs> I don't uh, know. <laughs> now we, we advertise we're going to talk about one Green Lantern, and that Green Lantern is John Stewart. He first appeared in Green Lantern Volume 2, number 87. This is December 1971 cover. He was created by Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams. Uh, Stewart was chosen as Hal Jordan's backup Green Lantern, and the decision to make him black came from a discussion between Adams and editor Julia Schwartz. Adams said, We ought to have a black Green Lantern, not because we're liberals, but because it just makes sense. And I gotta wonder, did it just make sense to have everyone refer to him as Black Lantern for the first decade that he was around? No, yeah, you know, sometimes they try, they try hard. They try, it was earnest, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, he would eventually take over for Hal in Green Lantern Volume 2, number 182. This is November 1984 cover date, after Hal threw one of his famous tissy fits uh, at the Guardians of the issue prior. Now, John would serve as Green Lantern during Crisis on Infinite Earths. And Hal would eventually resume his role as 2814's main man in Green Lantern Volume 2, number 199. That was April 1986 cover. Uh, John would still be a Green Lantern, just, you know, not not the main one. He's not the lunchbox lantern just yet. Right. Uh, In the meantime, Guy Gardner came out of his coma and also became a Green Lantern. Sure, everyone was a Green Lantern. Now, for more on that, you can check out our extensive coverage on Crisis on Infinite Earths in the archives. It's, was it five episodes? It's five episodes, 50 to 55, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a biggie. Be. Yeah, or 50 to uh, 54, maybe, something like that. Yes. Now, John would eventually marry fellow Lantern Kat Matui until her untimely death at the hands of the Star Sapphire in Action Comics Weekly number 601 in May 1988. Uh, he would also fail to save the planet Zanshi from the anti-life equation during Cosmic Odyssey, and that was a failure that would shape his character for many years to come. For follow. many years, yeah, that was a big thing for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, following the Mosaic storyline in the relaunch in, in the relaunch Green Lantern title, John was chosen to oversee the Patchwork Mosaic planet as its sole protector in Green Lantern. Green Lantern Mosaic would run for 18 issues between June 1992 and November 1993, and it was one trippy as hell series. It ended with Stewart's ascension as the first mortal guardian of the universe. The cancellation was not without controversy, per artist Cully Hemner said, uh, As I was told at the time, it didn't fit with DC Editorial's vision, whatever that means. Sales didn't matter. Fan support didn't matter. The first issue sold about 210,000 copies. And my last issue sold about 70,000. So there was plenty of support for the book. It was marked for cancellation when issue 5 came out, and they allowed Jerry Jones a year to wrap it up. But there was no doubt that it was being canceled because somebody upstairs just didn't care for it. He goes on to be crippled. This is John goes on to be crippled during an outing with the Dark Stars, some malady that was cured by Parallax. Check out our coverage of the final night in the archives for more on that. And the Green Lantern Corps would eventually come back, and John is back in the ranks. And in fact, he leads the ranks of the Green Lantern Mm -hmm. Corps right now, despite it being in a comic 
titled Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps. So yep. <laughs> we, don't know, we don't know what that's about, but he is around, folks. He sure is. He looms large. Um, someone who kind of doesn't anymore is uh, John Paul Valley, Asriel. He stepped in for Batman in, in 1993. A Bat-centric event uh, called Nightfall began with Batman number 492. This is May 1993 cover. Uh, and that ran throughout Batman and Detective Comics for eight months. A new villain named Bane, an experimental steroids-infused giant in a luchador ma- mask, endeavors to break the bat. Now, these experimental steroids are actually a drug called Venom, a drug that Bruce himself was actually addicted to during Legends of the Dark Knight storyline of the same name. This ran from issues 16 through 20, March through July, 1991. But that's a whole other story. A good story, though. It was. It was indeed. (laughs) Uh, Now, at the end of a long gauntlet of Batman's rogues gallery, Bane finally breaks Batman's back. Uh, While Bruce Wayne uh, recuperates, Asriel takes over the cape and cowl and protects Gotham City. Uh, Now, Asriel was introduced just before Nightfall in a a story called Batman Sword of Asriel, number one, October 1992, by Denny O'Neill and Joe Quesada. And yeah, it's that same Marvel, Joe Quesada. The Joe Quesada. Yes. Wow. And And to be fair, it's also the... Danny O'Neill. That's right. He ain't no slouch either. <laughs> he is indeed. Uh, or he isn't indeed, actually. Yeah. Uh, now, Asriel was the uh, Manchurian candidate sleeper assassin role for John Paul Valley, a computer science student at Gotham U, who had been brainwashed by the shadowy religious group, the Order of St. Dumas. Now, Batman has been trying to cure him of his programming that was called The System since they met. And now he thinks Asriel's good enough to be the Bat. So, beginning in Batman 489, February 1993, he goes with it. Over the course of the few issues, however, the system starts to take over again, and he adds on to the classic Batman costume until it's unrecognizable. That's right. Uh, This is a... uh, this is like Cable stumbled into the Batcave. Basically, yeah. It's like a ni- very 1990s thing. He shoots these little bat discs out. It's very crazy. Yeah, and I think it was purposely done like that to, uh, yeah. Yeah, to, make it, to make it extreme. It was sort of an, uh, it was sort of an, an commentary on some of the costumes. On what's going on, time, yeah. Right? Now, this costume was designed by the same Joe Quesada, and he will very happily tell you That's that. That's right, often, and whenever he gets a chance, yeah. But uh, he didn't. He didn't create Deadpool. That was another guy I can't remember right now. Uh, something Lee. Something I don't remember. I think yeah, Lee, <laughs> Lee, Lee Fields did it. Yeah. Now eventually, Bruce Wayne recovers from his broken back and snatches that cowl right back. Yeah, everything's fine. Don't, it's nothing to recover from broken back. Nah. It's no big deal. Uh, now, Commissioner Gordon also stepped in for Batman. We're going to assume you know who Commissioner Gordon is because we don't have Aiden. <laughs> he showed up in the very first issue of Detective Comics number 27. That was 1938, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the new 52 concluded in Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo's Batman with issue number 40. April 2015 covered eight. This was the final issue of the story arc Batman Ed Game. In this issue, the Joker and Batman appear to die together. After a two-month hiatus which contained the regrettable and forgettable DC Comics event Convergence, as well as a move from the offices of New York to Burbank, DC began its equally forgettable marketing campaign, DCYOU. Uh, this really will be, I mean, someday people will never talk about this. Uh, <laughs> this included a mysteriously depowered Superman in a t-shirt, Hal Jordan as a wanted criminal in the Green Lantern Corps shifted to another dimension, and... Commissioner Gordon in a robot suit to replace Batman's patrols in Gotham City. Started in Batman number 41 with an August 2015 cover date in an arcs titled 
Super Heavy. Seems the suit was created by Powers International, created and represented by CEO Jerry Powers. And the suit sort of looks like a blue Robotech suit uh, with big radar ears that caused many to call the suit Bat Bunny. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gordon's attempts to get used to the suit, which he ditches at every chance, instead preferring this lithe, kind of form-fitting body glove suit that he wears within the armor, uh, throughout Detective Comics as well, but this time is maybe mercifully very short, as Bruce Wayne is back on the scene by issue number 44, so... Yeah, and I, I always thought that uh, that Gordon without his mustache, the way they drew him without That's the mustache, right. he looked, he looked kind of like Metamorpho. <laughs> In a way, you know, he his head was very boxy, and it also yeah, it was didn't, very strange. It didn't really make him look much younger. It made him look very, like, sickly, I thought, almost. Yeah, uh, he was ill. Having know. read this, though, and I definitely would not tell you to run and read this arc, but they started mm-hmm. it, interestingly, it was a lot about Commissioner Gordon's internal thoughts about uh, policing. You know, it was yeah. a lot of internal stuff. But they ditched it really fast. They just didn't even. They didn't even go anywhere with it. They didn't explore. They didn't do. They didn't flesh it out like it could have no, been. No, they, they pretty much went in a little bit and then they ran away. That that uh, seemed to be the theme of DCYOU. It, it sure starts was. out really strong and then just like, eh, maybe not. They were like, ah, oh, we're gonna back off. So yeah, that uh, <laughs> that was that. Now we got another stand-in. This is uh, this time it's for Wonder Woman and it's Artemis standing in. Now finding she's unworthy of the title and because Hippolyta had visions of Diana dying. Artemis, who first appeared in Wonder Woman Volume 2, Number 90, September 1994 cover, takes over for Diana as Wonder Woman. This happens in Wonder Woman Volume 2, Numbers 94 through 100, written by William Messner Loeb's with art by Mike Diodato. Uh, Artemis turns out to be a much more lethal, uh, you know, vigilante character like Asriel before her. Right. And is eventually has to be put down by Diana. Uh, still, Volume Three of Wonder Woman begins with Donna Troy in the role. So, who really knows what's happening? I, it's I a don't. Very uh, nebulous role. <laughs> uh, the last one we're going to talk about, and this one's very briefly, very brief because it's uh, it's confusing and it's uh, annoying. It only lasted. It only lasted like eight, I, seven, I, or eight I, issues too. Was, I sneezed and I missed it. It wasn't anything. <laughs> we're going to talk about Tim Drake becoming Batman Beyond. Now the confusing events of the weekly DC event, Future's End, result in Tim Drake being sent into the future to become Batman Beyond, taking over for the dead Terry McGinnis. Right. And this begins with a volume five of Batman Beyond that uh, is another DC YOU book, July 2015. And uh, really, a such a such a downer ending for uh, Future's End. There, it's seemed to be building to something, and then all of a sudden they 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 zigged when I thought they were going to zag. They, and it's, they well, really it's, it's all the about plug. this. Yeah, it was really yeah. silly. The ending of Brother Eye sending Tim Drake into the future. Uh, yeah. There was Future's End might be something I might have to unpack here because it had a lot of concepts in it I liked, and then clearly something went off rails towards the end. They, of it. Like they decided that rebirth was going to happen or something, or they decided or that the convergence, DC, what, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, they 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 changed the uh, the tone of it. So uh, big time. But that would be a big one since that is like I don't know, but that's a year's worth or something. A lot of issues. I think so. it went forty eight issues. Forty eight yeah. issues. So. Maybe someday we'll close. get there. <laughs> not, not right away. You know, not today. Not this, so, yeah. uh, we found that this uh, event right here is plenty to unpack. But uh, <laughs> if you are, could think of any other great uh, stand-ins for superheroes, or you want to talk about the any of the four Supermen that came out, and what your thoughts were at the time, or really anything you feel like talking about. You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history. 
We're on Twitter at Cosmic T-Mail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. Find our weekly writings at WeirdScienceDCComics.com, and I always tell you every week you got to go check out Chris's personal blog. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com, where he reviews a new DC comic every day of the week, and you have definitely been ping-ponging around the uh, times this week, as I recall. Mm-hmm. You know, I seem to recall there was some Bronze Age action, some more modern action. You reviewed some a new fifty-two. Yeah, I reviewed a comic. I was like, oh, it's too bad he had to review that one. Uh, <laughs> I forgot about the new fifty. What was the new fifty-two one? It was. Uh... Uh, it was the though that one I actually liked, but there was another one. That, it was the uh, the DCYOU. Uh... Action comics with the uh, T-shirt oh, Superman. Yes, it was yes. just uh, was not, like, not, not uh, my not my favorite. Oh. Well, you know, it it gets worse from there. Because uh, <laughs> as, as it came out, it teased kind of a mystery where you're like, why did he lose the powers? You you really don't find out till like for months. And uh, yeah, that was the time that they were. By the time running, it doesn't matter. They were running Action Superman, and wasn't there another super title? There was Action Superman, Superman Batman, and Superman Wonder Woman. That's what it was exactly. Yeah. So they were running. The story in all four comics, which you're like, wow, well, this will move at a good clip. It moved, nope. it moved glacially, but anyway, Even slower. Don't, don't, don't listen to me. Go, go to Kristen and Earth <laughs> for that kind of uh, commentary on these comics. This is not where we uh, trying to pick them apart too much. Uh, we also have our own uh, blog here for the show, uh, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where. Uh, I think I, I think I'm up to date. So uh, there's a lot of old stuff missing, but the newest stuff is up there. So that's good. I'd like to also just start dumping things I like in there too. You know, sometimes yeah, anything like, you know, works, a page, yeah. of, you know, something, uh, something. You know, we'll we'll figure more stuff out. Maybe even linking to other people's swell reviews could be a stuff, thing. Yes. But uh, I think that's all I got from this week. Chris, got anything else for him? Nope, that'll do it. Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill and don't call me Superboy. Happy Thanksgiving.